0: digital media, iTunes Podcast, smartphone app, and from the online website. This is our talk, the talking newspaper for Coventry.
1: Welcome to Outlook. I'm Peter Walters and this edition is being recorded on Wednesday the first of february twenty twenty three. Coming up in the next ninety minutes, uh, we're hearing about Charlesmore Gatehouse. Remembering Andrew Carnegie, creator of libraries, and looking into the real story of our very own Lady Godiva, plus the origins of Amazing Grace, and all our usual features. But we start with a review of the past week's local news with me and Nigel. Outlook News A huge building fire in Radford is believed to have been sparked by an illegal drugs farm. West London's police believe a cannabis factory started the a blaze on Tuesday evening last week. The fire broke out at a two-storey flat above the retail shops in Jubilee Crescent. It caused significant damage, resulting in BG debt and the Godiva closing, as well as several residents being evacuated from their homes. In the aftermath after of the fire, many businesses were forced to shut on the street, although most reopened. People are still reading from the blaze, with many taken aback by the sheer scale of the fire. Carl, who worked at the EyeSight Eye Care Centre in Jubilee Crescent, summed up the views of many when he said, We shut the day after the fire. The whole row of shops were closed. Business is now reopened, so we've not been affected. So it was very really scary to see. Fire crews across the West Midlands from Coventry. Birmingham and Solihull attended the scene at around 9.26 on Tuesday in the evening. The fire lit up the night sky and ripped through the affected property, although thankfully there were no injuries. Midlands police have warned that criminals are using more inventive ways to conceal cannabis growing, not just in rooms, but in shops and underground. Cannabis farms are dangerous places and pose a serious risk to fire due to overloaded electrical circuits running close to water-filled pipes. Plants were upstairs in the building could also cause forwards to rot, resulting in the building's collapse. After the blaze, residents from street properties due to safety reasons were not able to return. Following on from that Jubilee Crescent fire is another cannabis report. Tucked away on an unsuspecting Coventry Street was a cannabis farm with a huge stash of drugs worth an eye-watering £230,000. Officers stormed the address and uncovered a hall of plants on every floor of the two-storey property in Coventry. Every room within the terrace property was filled with cannabis plants and the sheer number of electrical cables and plugs was termed lethal. A bright glow could be seen emanating from the hallway with a number of lights cleverly placed on the ground floor of the property on Bramble Street in Stoke. Officers forced entry into the property at about 8.15am on Wednesday last week but were quickly stopped in their tracks. A sturdy steel door had been screwed into the wall to act as a barrier to police and cannabis farm burglars who were becoming extremely notorious in the city. Officers uncovered more than 90 plants and a haul of dry harvested bud as part of a sophisticated setup to produce drugs with a street value of around 230,000. A top police officer described the cannabis farm as one of the worst I've ever seen. An arrest was made at the scene, and West Midlands Police later charged 27-year-old Gentian Muka with production of cannabis. Experts from National Grid were also called to the tr- terrace property and were alarmed at the sophisticated setup and bypass electricity supply. A spokesman to the company said, We were there to ensure the electrics are safe. Unsafe connections as a result of bypass meters or overloaded sockets create a fire risk. A 3D printed sculpture of King Henry VI will go up in Coventry this year as part of the rebuilding of a historic landmark. The artwork is an exact replica of a statue that now sits in the Herbert Art Gallery. The original statue was made in the 1500s for the city. The 3D printed version was set along with the 1976 replica of the Coventry Cross. The cross was returned to the city centre four years after it was controversially removed. Work to rebuild the 57-foot high cross in in its new location by Primark, and opposite the Holy Trinity Church, is expected to be finished in the spring. Coventry City Councilor Jim O'Boyle said he had the idea for the copy when he was told about the old statue in the Herbert. He explained, I said, wouldn't it be great to put that in the Coventry Cross? After historians said the original statue was too old and fragile, Councillor Boer asked if a copy could be made and went to Coventry for an HPL for the job. Speaking to the local Democracy Reporting Service, he said, it's the best of the old and the best of the new. I'm really proud of that. It is automatic manufacturing technology being put to use to make a piece of art. The statue is as close to the original as possible, he said. It will go behind panels in the new cross. Councillor O'Boyle admitted that moving the cross to make way for a restaurant by Cathedral Reims caused a bit of controversy at the time. Hundreds of people signed a petition against it, though the new Turtle Bay by the cathedral has proved popular. But he said the new location of the cross is closer to its original position in the city and will be more advantageous as it is more prominent. Work on the statue and the Coventry cross cost around £800,000. He said the project is important because it helps tell the story of Coventry and because the council pledged that they will return the cross to the centre. I promised I'd do this and I'm doing it, he said. Coventry residents are devastated at the loss of trees on an old allotment site that's been turned into homes. 30 individual trees, 6 groups of trees and a hedgerow are being cleared from land in Holbrooks to make way for 54 affordable houses. Two houses have also been knocked down to provide access to the new estate, which is bounded by Meadow Road and Holdsworth Crescent. People living in the area claim the trees were healthy and established and provided habitat for wildlife. Bentley Court resident Yvette Peake said she's so upset about the new build of the allotments. Posting in a Facebook community group, she said Ash trees, silver birch, all the old oaks, and many others are all chopped down. They had families in them, hawks, owls, squirrels, no, no more, all gone. Darren Velzatis, who lives on a road nearby, said, the houses at the bottom of the development would surely benefit from facing the trees. He added, we simply don't do enough to support nature. Poplars are perfect for bats, as they have crevices, I'm disappointed at the loss of the trees. Bat boxes in the new homes aren't enough to replace the lost habitat, he said. Most trees on the site will be taken down according to a tree impact report in planning documents, which added, there is an unavoidable requirement to incur tree removal as part of the development proposal. Meanwhile, an ecology report stated that bats have a confirmed presence on the site, hedgehogs are likely to live there, and trees and scrub provide habitats for birds, but it concluded that most of the site's habitats are not considered to be of ecological importance. Bat and bird boxes, bee bricks and a wildlife meadow have all been recommended as ways to improve the development's biodiversity. Count County councillors approved plans for the fifty four homes in June last year despite a petition signed by more than two hundred people against it. Holbrook's councillor Rachel Lancaster spoke out against the scheme, saying, Knowing the area so well and knowing the ecological diversity on the site, it's a massive loss to the community. Residents were left furious after several bags filled with rubbish were found dumped in Coventry Canal. Locals were left disgusted at the trash which was spotted under bridge number 13 along the canal. The fly dip included several large plastic bags filled up with waste, along with plastic, cardboard, and styrofoam packaging. It appears that some of the trash was spilling out from the bags and into the canal. One resident spotted the waste and uploaded a photograph of the I saw on Facebook. In the photo caption, she called it "absolute imbronic behavior." It drew a number of comments from angry residents. One person wrote, "This type of behavior makes me so angry." Another said people who do this are the absolute dregs of society, scum of the earth, filthy gits. Meanwhile, one commented disgusting. What's wrong with some people? Hope they're gonna have to be fine. Local residents resorted to cleaning up the rubbish themselves, according to Facebook comments. This is not the first time residents have taken things into their own hands to clean up the canal. In December last year, residents carried out a mass cleaning operation after the canal was littered with swathes of rubbish. Shopping trolleys, food packaging, and plastic bags were among the rubbish dumped in the Coventry Canal. With nets and grubbers, volunteers took up the task to clean up the floating rubbish under bridge number eight of the canal. A suspected Coventry fly tipper is under police investigation, thanks to a quick thinking member of the public. A picture of a trawed transit van whose driver was alleged to have fly-tipped at an entrance to a field in Woolston was passed to officers from Warwickshire Police's Operational Patrol Unit. The eagle-eyed member of the public had managed to obtain a cracking photo of the vehicle, an OPU spokesperson said. The driver was blatantly offloading a load of rubbish into a farmer's field gateway. We attended the registered keeper's address in Coventry. The vehicle was located near the property. So, under the Environmental Protection Act 1990, we recovered the vehicle as both evidence of the offence, whilst also prov- preventing further offences. Details for the registered keeper of the van have been sent to the Force's rural crime team, which will be completing a detailed investigation. Fly tipping has become a huge problem in Coventry and surrounding areas. A nuisance fly tipping spot in Talents Road, Longford, has long been used as a dumping ground. Flytipping is also said to have blighted Occupation Road in Stoke where rats have been seen scurrying through mounds of rubbish. Coventry Police have seized and destroyed a bike after concerns in the Henley community about the antisocial use of off-road bikes. As well as destroying and seizing the bike, a 17-year-old was also charged and bailed to court for breach of criminal behaviour and criminal damage. It comes after the police team tried a new vehicle tagging spray to aid in identifying offenders. The selected DNA spray allows police to tag offenders on 2 wheel vehicles and then later examine offending vehicles and identify them from the spray. Sergeant Dean Stew, Neighbourhood Policing Unit Lead for Off-Road Bike Crime and Antisocial Behaviour, Said they are acting on community concerns now that they are equipped with selected DNA spray. We are also working with social housing landlords and the local authority to explore civil enforcement using it outside the criminal process. We are listening to the community concerns in the area and know how much of an issue the antisocial use of motorcycles or e bikes can be. We are now equipped with additional capabilities to identify riders who are trying to conceal their identity and will take steps across a range of partners to deal with those intent on causing antisocial behaviour or committing motorcycle-enabled crime. The seizure and arrest came just a week after the selective fray was adopted by the team. The team now has future plans to roll the new scheme out across the force. Ping Zahra Sultana has planned the Conservative Party for their decision to block the Scottish Gender Recognition Reform Bill. In a tweet, the MP called the move disgraceful, claiming it treats trans people as a political football, targeting one of the most marginalized groups in the country. The Gender Recognition Reform Bill Scotland, which aimed to make it easier for transgender people to legally change their gender, was blocked by Scottish Secretary Alistair Jack. Mr Jack cited concerns that the legislation would have an adverse impact on equality legislation in the UK. The bill, first proposed by Scotland's First Minister, Nicola Sturgeon, six years ago, would have amended the Gender Recognition Act of 2004 to introduce new criteria for applicants seeking a gender recognition certificate. Obtaining such a certificate legally recognised the person's acquired gender In 2004, if you want your affirmed gender to be legally recognised, you've needed a gender recognition certificate. Mr Jack said, After thorough and careful consideration of all the relevant advice and the policy implications, I'm concerned that this legislation would have an adverse impact on the operation of Great Britain-wide equalities legislation. Transgender people who are going through the process to change their legal sex deserve our respect, support and understanding. My decision is about the legislation's consequences for the operation of GB-wide Equalities Protections and other reserve matters. I have not taken this decision lightly. The Bill would have a significant impact on, among other things, GB-wide Equalities Matters in Scotland, England and Wales. I have concluded, therefore, that this is the necessary and correct course of action. He added, If the Scottish Government chooses to bring an amended bill back for reconsideration in the Scottish Parliament, I hope we can work together to find a constructive way forward that both respects devolution and the operation of the UK Parliament legislation. A a Cosmety Dog Show has been cancelled following a BBC panorama probe into the breeding and trading of American bullies. The Coventry Building Society Arena was due to host the American Bully Kennel Club UK event this next month, but now the event on February 11th has been called off after the BBC programme revealed footage taken at an ABKC UK show in Manchester where hundreds of dogs paraded with cropped ears. The undercover footage was aired last Monday during Panorama, and now as a result, a spokesperson for the venue in Coventry said the arena has terminated its agreement with the organisers. cropping in UK dogs was exposed by Panorama as a growing problem, particularly with extreme mixed breeds such as American bullies and XL bullies. Ear cropping, where the tops of the dog's ears are cut off, is illegal in the UK after the Animal Health and Welfare Act of 2006. Leading vet Dave Martin has called for an outright ban on owning a dog with cropped ears in the UK, and slammed owners seeking out the dogs for a fashion statement. He warned that the unnecessary surgical procedure, in which a dog's ears are removed or altered, has no benefits for the dog and can cause permanent damage. Proposals for a ban on importing dogs with copiers have been put forward by the government. Some people have made a package out of selling a new crane's drink called Prime, but a kind-hearted pair of Coventry shopkeepers have handed out free bottles of the viral sensation to raise money for charity. After scenes of huge queues and ridiculous prices in some UK shops, brothers Aman and Yogi Upal Decided to buck the trend and simply give away nearly 50 bottles of the energy drink at newsagent One Stop Mount Nod. A man 37 said he made the decision to give the energy drink away, but asking for a small donation which would be used to support Camney Food Hub. With the support of the community, the shopkeeper raised £280. A man said he's never seen such a high demand for a product and was amazed at how social media had turned the energy drink into a viral sensation. I think it's amazing how a product has spiralled and become so successful overnight, he said. He continued, we could have stopped it. However, I didn't go down that route because I didn't want to be charging £10. Overnight, you can have your reputation tarnished, and there are a lot of retailers that have done that, and it's given them a bad name. When we were finally able to access some of the stock at a reasonable price, I thought we could turn this into something positive. A man used the donation money to buy food and household goods which were donated to Canley Food Hub. He said they were simply over the moon when he took the huge donation to the charity. Handwritten letters by illustrious coventry poet Philip Larkin discussing his declining health just a year before he died could fetch hundreds of pounds at auction after being found in a dusty attic Larkin, who grew up in the city before reading English at St. John's College, Oxford, penned the correspondence to his cousin during the 1980s. The notes display Larkin's characteristic wit as he complains how he is getting too fat and deaf. Larkin also hopes from his his adopted home of Hull in a postcard he sent depicting the city. The fascinating correspondence was recently uncovered during a clear-out of a loft in Sutton Coalfield. The letters to his cousin Vera Thorpe begin in 1977 include one of the final Christmas cards Larkin would have sent, postmarked December 17, 1984. Considered one of Britain's greatest post war poets, Larkin died on December the 2nd, 1985, after a battle with esophageal cancer. He was only 63. Other correspondence includes a postcard sent to Vera, who lived in Lichfield in August 1974, thanking her for a birthday card. The postcard is illustrated with a picture of Prince's in Hull as it was in 1887, with Larkin's caption, Hull doesn't look like this nowadays, worse luck. He describes himself as all right but too fat and deaf, and confesses his memory has mislaid your married name. He asks, please let me have it, I'll put it in my book, a request which was granted according to their communication. Larkin was born in Coventry and grew up in Radford before his family moved to a large three-story home close to Coventry Railway Station when he was five. After studying it at Oxford, he worked in Hull as head librarian at the city's university and later moved there in 1955 he was known to mock the city, describing it as a hole which smelt like fish and had witless, catulous people. His poetic compositions reflected the dreariness of post-war England and the unhappiness it caused. Unusually with fame, Larkin rarely, cons- rarely consented to interviews, working in libraries for much of his life, and is famously quoted, saying, "Deprivation is for me what daffodils were for Wordsworth. Outlook News Thanks to Nigel for uh, helping you read the news there. Um, We've got a couple of, uh, well just one announcement really, and as usual it's the lighting up times. Um, Sunrise is this week at 7.49am and sunset is at 4.53pm. Okay, moving on. So here is Hugh with this experience and it was awesome, thank you.
0: Thank you very much. I was uh, listening to that bit about Larkin there and because uh, we did a, a, a piece about him uh, a few years ago with the criteria. Um, and because uh, he used to spend quite a lot of time in Elston. He certainly did. Um, up, at the, uh, up on... Um, uh, Beachwood Avenue there's a big house up there yeah. anyway I played Larkin and uh, on, on some of these things and, yeah. and uh, my favourite bit is, you know Larkin on Coventry this is, this is I think it's from Whitson Weddings. Uh, is he's going past and he, his view of Coventry was Nothing like something yeah, that's happens anywhere. Yeah, that's that's in the poem. I remember. I remember. Yeah. Oh, I remember. That's I remember. That's right. that's right. That's right. Yeah. I
1: remember, I remember. Well, yeah. That's right. I remember. I remember. Well, yeah. I know from from what uh, Michael was saying about his <laughs> owl. Oh, oh. that's yeah.
0: probably No. Yeah. Well, yeah. Possibly. I think
1: he was just of that mind. Yeah. Uh,
0: mind uh, you, I think he's just funny. I mean, I have to say, everybody goes, you know, goes on about oh, he's really miserable. I do I think he's just hilarious.
1: Well, I. I once met um, Anthony Swate, who was his literary right. he's also a poet, Yeah, knew him very well. Yes. And he said the thing about Philip Larkin, if you got to know him, was he was hilarious. Yes, yes.
0: Yeah. And that's oh, An
1: incredible sense of it's humor. <laughs> very dry. It's very movie. dry.
0: That's what it, and that's what comes out yes. for me all the time with his poems. I really like them. Yes. Yes. Anyway. Right. Uh, to our muttons, as they say, um, let us uh, thank uh, wholeheartedly Chris and Claire, who have completed their 250 challenge, Uh, they were going to be running 250 kilometres, ended up running 250 miles each, Um, and uh, so they went well over and above um, what uh, their original pledge was, and I'm very pleased to say... Uh, that they have garnered huge amounts of support as well. So um, as of today, um, the total that they've raised is spot on at £1,900, which is terrific. So um, thank you so, so much to them. Yesterday, as I'm speaking to you, uh, we had a photographer from the Coventry Observer come along. Uh, so in the Coventry Observer this week, there will be an article um, and a good photo um, about uh, Chris and Claire finishing uh, finishing their challenge, uh, we will. They're also going to go back on onto uh, Lorna Bailey's show on uh, on BBC Coventry and Warwickshire. So anyway, great celebrations! Thank you so much to them and to um, Anne and Simon um, uh, who have. Uh, helped and supported um, uh, Chris and Claire uh, to do their challenge, and all the many other people who, you know, who've, uh, who've been helping with the gliding. So that is um, just a terrific piece of news. So well done then, and thank you so much. I mean, the money goes to a very good cause, as we all know. Now um, we have also received another grant, which is very pleasing. Um, this is this is from the. Um, Warwickshire Community Energy, a uh, Community Energy Warwickshire Fund, there we are, and uh, we put in a little bit uh, uh, last year for this, because uh, with the cost of electricity, you know, going ever, ever skywards, we're fine for the moment because we're on a fixed rate deal, but when that comes to an end later this year, uh, it's going to hurt. So... Uh, we have we asked them for money to exchange all our light bulbs for LED ones, uh, which you know cost an amount of money, uh, and also to rewire completely the Mary Beale room because uh, Ma- Mary Beale room has its original wiring from about 1968. Certainly so has the original. Well, I wouldn't call it a board; it's more of a breaker um, uh, uh, that uh, is in there. So we're going to get that um, uh, redone as well. So it's two thousand pounds from them. So we're very pleased for that um, so um i'm hoping we're hoping we're expecting some good news well expecting some news, hopefully good news about a massive massive um, uh, a bid that we've made to the council as well um we We were expecting to hear about it yesterday. Uh, they emailed and said it might not be. Tuesday, it might be Wednesday or soon after. Um, I don't know what they mean by soon, but anyway, they'd better hurry up. So uh, maybe next week I'll be able to talk a bit more about that. It'll be huge news if we get it. Um, Just to let you know that Jo is going to be off on holiday on Friday the 9th and Monday the 13th of February. So um, uh, if you need to speak to her, don't speak to her on those days because she isn't here. She's having a nice weekend off. I wasn't here last week, and I really wasn't very much available the week before, the reason for that being that um, uh, I've been dealing with my mother, uh, who uh, was in hospital in Scotland and had to be moved into a care home, uh, and that care home you determined should be here in Coventry, so I was up and down the M4, uh, no, M4, M6, um about four times in about in about four days. Mm. Uh, so I've put in quite a lot of miles. So uh, thank you to everybody um, for being patient, for me not being here. That's, uh, but anyway, she's safely ensconced now in the nursing home. Um, one last thing. Um, I We have had in the past a number of CCTVs. Uh, these are the desktop digital magnifiers. Um... Uh, um uh, in stock here at the uh, at the centre. Um, old ones, second-hand ones. And um, over the course of, you know, a, uh, a year or so, two years, we have got rid of all of the ones that we had. Um, and from time to time, we get um, requests for them. Not very often, but from time to time that we do. I'm wondering if anybody out there has um, an old CCTV Um, an Optelec sort of uh, machine that you're not using anymore, you can't use anymore, uh, is taking up um, a corner of your living space that you would rather reclaim. And if you have, um, I would be uh, grateful to receive it. Um, If, like... Loads of you have them. I'm not going to be able to accept all of them, but if you if you do have one, I would be quite interested in, in getting my hands on a couple because we do get the uh, do get uh, requests for them from time to time, and I'm out of um um out of out of them at the moment. So thank you very much. Okay, um, that's me waffling on quite a lot today. Um, a lot of ums and ers and everything, but. I will be, hopefully, slightly more engaged next week. Thank you, Hugh. Um, let's hope,
1: fingers crossed, for that major council.
0: Yes. i uh, my gosh. fingers are for v- everything. I'm surprised right, I can right. walk so, much, so many things it's across. I'll really really looking
1: forward to hearing more about that next week. Thank yes. you, Dan. And here's Sarah with this week's sport. Outlook Sport. Outlook Sport.
2: Well, hello listeners and welcome to Sport with Sarah. Now, this week I'm going to start with Rugby Union. You know, that game played with the ovoid shape ball. Well, Coventry Rugby Club was playing away with Ealing Trailfinders. Now, Ealing are running away with the championship by a country mile They are at the top and haven't lost at home at all this season. My friend says he has never left the club. Ealing, that is, with a smile on his face, because he's a fervent Coventry supporter. Anyway, interesting match. The first half went to plan. Ealing seemed to steamroll a Coventry. But then, I don't know what the manager said in the half-time, but they were butting into the football, so you heard the scores. All of a sudden, Coventry got back to 14 points to 10. 14 Ealing, 10 Coventry. Then the next thing I knew, it was 19-14. And then 22-14... Then Ealing came back, so it was 1922. Oh gosh, they're going to do the same as the Jersey Reds did on us last week and equalise in the dying seconds. But no. This time, Coventry beat Ealing. It is the first time in the professional era that they have ever done that. The other clubs in the championship must be thinking, oh, who are that Coventry? Because I know we're only in third place at the moment, but remember we drew with second place jersey reds and we've beaten the leaders. Well done, Cov. Who needs wasps when you've got Cov Blues? Meanwhile, the men playing with the more traditional shape ball, that is our football, well, we had Coventry City taking on Huddersfield. Now, Huddersfield were the last team in the division whose city had yet to face and normally would have done so before Christmas, the traditional halfway point. But with the extended break for the World Cup and weather, etc., etc., we were playing them as our final catch up game. Now we went into this match reasonably confident and quite buoyant because of the fantastic news that Doug King is now our outright owner having bought out Sisu who retained 15% of us. Now the first half was, well shall we say, pretty turgid. As usual, but then cue part two. First goal from Gustav Hamer after a fantastically converted corner. Then, second goal from Casey Palmer made by Jocherez, you know, that player that begins with a G. City 2 0. And so it stayed until the end. And it was great to see Matthew Gordon back playing, albeit he only came on as a substitute in about the 80th minute but he's been sidelined with injury since October and he was so near to scoring but the goalie died the wrong way but his right leg just caught the ball oh well Matty save your best for next time so that was it Coventry are back to winning ways. We are now in 13th position, but most importantly, we are 12 points above the relegation zone. And I think I heard that we were within four points of actually the playoffs. So, come on, City, you can do it, lads. Now, our non league teams were back playing the full. Program. Many of the games have been um, postponed due to the bad weather and frozen pitches Oh, and one final thing, sorry, about Coventry City Their next match is Friday evening against West Brom So if you're thinking of tuning in, and you tune in on Saturday, you'll have missed it now, our non-league teams were back to their full programme. And Lenington were at home to Lynn, but I'm afraid they lost 3-0. Mm, the players, the commentator did say they looked very sort of ring-rusty, having had no, no games, he suspected. Stratford beat Rushton and Diamonds 2-0. That was a fantastic score for Stratford, so well done you lads. Nuneaton drew nil-nil, I'm afraid, with Stourbridge. And Bedworth drew 1-1 with a club I can't read what I have written. But never mind, Bedworth drew 1-1. Now, in the FA bars, great news for Coventry Sphinx, who beat Bigger Suede United. Isn't that a wonderfully named club? But they are now in the last 16. So come on, you Sphinxes. Meanwhile, in the Midlands Premier League, Rugby Town were away and won at Lutterworth. Racing Club Warwick beat Whitbrook Church two goals to nil. However, Coventry United, I'm afraid, lost to Wellingborough by three goals to one. Yet, big result for Coventry United women who were playing in the fourth round of the FA Cup and they beat Hashtag United 4-0 Just a quick word about hashtag United They were formed out of an appeal on Twitter Hence the hashtag I mean they are playing several divisions below Coventry And I believe are fully amateur But hey ho, we can only beat who we're playing So well done ladies And now for the tennis. All I'm going to say about the women, because you won't recognize or understand the names that I can't pronounce, was that a Belarusian beat a Kazakhstan Russian. I call the latter a Kazakhstan Russian because she lives in Russia, she was educated in Russia, etc, etc. But she claims Kazakhstan citizenship. Anyway. But the wheelchair men's doubles was won by Alfie Hewitt and Gordon Reid. And the former, Alfie, had won the singles the previous day. So well done you two, Brit flying the flag. Now, as I had predicted, Novak Djokovic won the men's singles. He won in straight sets over Stefanos of Greece. Now, whereas the Bella, for the Belarusian female, it was her first Australian Open, in fact it was her first Grand Slam title, for Novak it was his 10th Australian and his 22nd Grand Slam. He now ties with Rafa Nadal as the all-time leaders at 22, and you just think, you just know, really, that with Wimbledon coming up, not to mention the French, very shortly, and Novak in this blistering form. Well, come on, Novak, get number t- title number 23 and 24 the other fact I find incredible is it's returned him to the world number one that's not incredible but it will be his 374th week as Grand Slam number one player so if you think about it that is seven years he has been the world number one not seven years consecutively and of course He had a silly break uh, for over a year because of his childish stance against the COVID COVID vaccination. But, well, I mean, he's 35, so he's got quite a few years left in those legs if you think of our Roger retiring at 40. Hmm... Now just another quick bit of local news, Chelsea Giles, who you may remember sprung to fame at the 2020 Tokyo Olympics because she was the first medal winner for Great Britain taking bronze in the judo, won gold at the World Championship. Local lassie trains in Coventry, lives in Coventry, etc, etc. She previously won silver and bronze at the World Championship, but this was her first gold medal. So, Coventry has a world champion. Pleased to say that. And another final bit of really good news. Do you remember with Coventry United women? how they won with literally the last kick of the match when Molly Green scored an almost freak goal against Watford in the relegation ding-dong match. Well, Molly Green is back with Coventry. She's on loan from Birmingham. But just think what a boost that's done. And finally... Just as you thought, oh, I've got to find a part of the world that hasn't got a football team. Well, the very last place in the world without one is getting one. The Marshall Islands. Midway, apparently between Australia and Hawaii, is getting an English-financed football team. There is no escape. Escape from the round ball. And that was your
1: sport. Thanks to Sarah for the sport. And here's Dave with Postbag. This is Postbag. Join in the discussion. Hello there, it's your Postbag again. Tina starts off by telling us what she did to celebrate the start of the Chinese New Year. On
3: Friday,
4: the home, we all celebrated Chinese New Year. It was Bobby, she laid on the meal. What did we have? Well, for starters we had crackers and, uh, and, uh, crisp, and pancakes, and a little bit of, uh,
5: sauce. It was chili sauce, and sweet chili, yeah. and then we had the meal, we had chicken, chicken curry with, with rice, and, uh,
1: obviously new because it was Chinese. <laughs> Alright, and that's it. Thank you, Tina. Our youngest son Graham tells me that he heard from Rowan Rat, who saved TVAM, that in China all the animals had a race. The ox was in the lead. But just as he was about to cross the river, a rat jumped on his back and jumped off when he got to the other bank and won. So the order that the animals came in the race is the order they come in the Chinese horoscope throughout the year. We were discussing festivals on VIP World Community and Rennie, who lives in Albany, Georgia in the United States, told us... About Mardi Gras.
5: Oh yeah, uh, Mardi Gras is really crazy. Uh, (laughs) It's sort of like, um, you know, it's uh, you know, dancing, eating, lots of drinking, um, women showing their breasts so they they can get um, necklaces. Uh, (laughs) um, No, they just—it's just a lot of craziness and fun.
1: Is it, so, is that mainly in New York? No,
5: it's in New Orleans. Is it in it is New stuff. Orleans?
1: It is yeah. in the United States, New Orleans. Oh, that's right, yes.
5: Yeah,
1: it's great. It's like delicious food, um, it's a bit of spice to it, like Cajun food,
5: things like that.
1: It sounds great, sounds like my kind of party. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> the bean part,
0: right, David? The bare, bare breast part. 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 That's the part.
1: That's the part, yeah. <laughs> and New Orleans, like right Georgia, where Winnie lives, is also in the deep south of the United States. So thank you, Renny. And just before Christmas, while Sheila was in hospital, I went into the resource centre, I brought out my phone in the tea room and introduced Nassim, Pete and Hugh to my friends in Kathmandu, Georgia, Barbados and also Luton. Pete and Nassim were thrilled to bits with the chat they had with them and Nassim was keen on doing a cooking without looking session someday and Pete won the quiz. Julia wanted to get to know Some more local people that she joins on a Monday morning at the Resource Centre. Her report is entitled Julia Had an Idea Getting to Know All About You. It came to me at the Monday Club last Monday. I thought. What a good idea it would be if we were all to introduce ourselves as we came in. After all, we can't all see, and some of us can't hear too well either. Just think about it. We all arrive in different ways. Some of us come in the minibus, some walk in, or come by car. My friend John comes in his helicopter. Anyway, when we arrive, we don't know who's there unless we are sitting next to them. Of course, we know when my friend John is in the room because of the smell. We want to know which volunteers are there too because sometimes we get new members and volunteers and it's good to know who we're talking to. Maybe the other classes would like to try it too because it would be good to know Who's there, and you never know, it might encourage new members to join, or stop shyer people from leaving. The Monday Club is a friendship club, and it's good to be friends. Apart from my friend John, there's not much good about him. Julia, OK. Well, thank you, Julia. I was so impressed by you. We will be going round the table introducing ourselves every week from now on and endeavouring to make sure you can hear them as well. So do members of your group introduce themselves before the meeting starts? Let us know. Here's a new member of the Monday Club, Angela, and she's going to tell you about playing golf.
6: I've play um, played golf for about 40 odd years um, and I thought I'm going to have to stop because I can't see but my grandchildren are very good so my son so they'll take me out and um, look to see where I hit the ball sometimes in the woods or wherever but um, yes, yeah, so they help and at the moment I can still
1: just about feet the touch
6: as long as you know which to go in, and you can
1: hit what your uh, grandchildren say about your uh, golf
6: um, well I'm still beating them you see yeah. but um, not for long one of them is becoming very good yeah. And um, he's, he's already out hitting me, but, I mean, he's 21, yeah. you know. So I don't have the force that I used to have. But I am um, still can hold my own at the moment with them, but it won't last.
1: Angela is wondering what will happen if a fight deteriorates. Will that be the end of a golf playing? Well, there are blind golfers. As the late magician Paul Daniels mentioned in an interview I did with him once. You know, when blind people play golf, they have a guy
6: stand behind and lines them up, and then I I quite hate them because they hit the ball better than me. <laughs> <laughs> How do you do that? Oh, I want to know. I tried shutting my eyes, I'm
7: just as bad. Anyway.
1: Well, I did report on an outing from the resource center once, and the users were whacking the ball about. 60 yards in the right direction, and scoring a hole-in-one on the putting green. I interviewed a blind golfer who scored a hole-in-one. I also followed a blind golfer around Hirstall Golf Course with his guide, who pointed out where the ball was, using a clock system, i.e. 100 yards at 2 o'clock. Let the resource centre know you're interested and they may let you know if there's another golf day coming up. And let your fellow listeners know if you play golf or another sport and how you did it. That would be great. And from scoring a birdie or an albatross in golf to a penguin and a bear. Here's Amy to tell you about meeting a penguin in Florida and naming a bear she named after it.
5: We visited Seaworld and there a light show in the evening called Sea of Trees. There was lots of Christmas trees with light on the water. So it, it looked like the Christmas trees were growing out of the water. And oh. I had my birthday when I was over there and I visited people again that day and they have a Build-A-Bear workshop. I built my own bear and he got to catch the bear and I I bought some outfits for him as well. I named him Cody after a penguin that I saw I I was lucky enough to meet as he was, and I got really <laughs> up close to him and was able to to stroke him. You you probably you probably wouldn't have thought.
1: Talking Bear that Amy built adds to her collection of mood bears from the Belgrade Theatre's pantomime dame Ian Lachlan that he gave to her from the series of books that he wrote from the same book company that produced her poetry book Renaissance. I introduced Amy to Ian when he came to the Monday Club. And I've been reading a book about our late Queen called Elizabeth by Giles Brandwood. Uh, tell us about a book you've enjoyed, and using what format, i.e., talking book or braille, and or large print. And that's it for this week. I've been getting by with a little help from my friends. Thank you very much. Please join them. Drop us a line into postbag or ring us up. You know the phone number: 024-76-717-522 and press five for Coventry Talking Newspaper. Okay, join me next week. Bye for now. This is Outlook.
0: You can contact postbag.
4: Our
0: website is www. Talkingnewspaper.org.uk Our email address is postbag at talkingnewspaper.org.uk. Join in the discussion on Postbag.
1: You've probably noticed that Dave's Postbag sometimes has a few messages. At other times, hardly anything at all. He'd love to hear more from more of you. Uh, whether with a comment on the programme a tip for fellow listeners, or just to say hello, so pick up the phone, dial 717 522, then option five, and leave your message on their answer phone. Now Margaret continues her tour of the architectural gems of the city, and this week visits Charles Moore Gatehouse.
8: Charles Gatehouse House could have been so much more, for until the 1950s, part of its original main hall still stood. What we see today, the gateway, is all that remains of a noted royal residence built of stone and timber. Due to war demands in 1942, a nearby engineering firm decided to knock down the old building, adjoining the gatehouse. Tiles were pulled off and the ceiling ripped down, revealing an ancient timbered roof. Local historian J.B. Shelton brought in experts and work was halted. The Ministry of Ancient Monuments recommended the building be listed as an ancient monument in 1943. In 1944, Historian Philip Chatwin wrote The old half-timber building spanning the roadway has been always known as the manor house. No one seems to have realised that a row of cottages within crowned by ribbon weaving rooms was actually the hall of the manor house. Admittedly, there was the medieval chimney at the far end but directly the plaster ceilings were removed, the wonderful 14th century roof became apparent. The roof is undoubtedly a gem, and we look forward to the time when some of the old glory of the hall can be recovered. The roof is remarkable in two ways, for not only is the timberwork a grand piece of medieval construction, but the tiles which covered it with its ridge complete are medieval too. Such a condition of things is unique in the Midlands, and a very great rarity in the country as a whole. The most remarkable thing about this hall, which belonged to Queen Isabella and the Black Prince, is it didn't survive. It was demolished in 1956. Why? It was said for necessary development. The site lay untouched for over 40 years. Fortunately, the gatehouse survived, possibly because it had been subdivided into two cottages and was still occupied, having been re in 1939. The gatehouse was demolished, uh, sorry, dismantled and carefully restored by the council, in 1965, and was found to stand on an earlier 14th century building, and below that a 12th century agricultural building. It is generally described as a 16th century manor gatehouse with two attached 14th century wings, the north wing having a 15th century floor. It is now the oldest register office in the country.
1: Most people are probably aware and impressed by Amazon founder Jeff Bezos's philanthropic plans to donate 104 billion dollars to good causes, which, along with people like Bill Gates of Microsoft and the Gates Foundation, wrote some of the biggest donations ever. But these generous donors don't come near to army Andrew Carnegie. Steel magnate magnet turned library builder who was probably the world's greatest philanthropist. Bill now reads the first part of a two-part exploration into his life, by Kate Thompson.
9: A crisp autumnal morning in 1922. The large crowd gathers for the unveiling of North Green's first public library. A handsome red-brick building of a shameful past. Only two years earlier, it had operated as a lunatic asylum, cruel incarceration of the mentally ill, placed with learning and literacy, the message of hope that must have sent to the community. It was described by the Daily Herald, its opening, as one of the finest libraries in the metropolis. The North Green Library in East London fast established itself as a cultural centre of the borough, by June 1924, the number of books issued passed the million mark. Indeed, the father of a blind girl who, only a year after the library opened, obtained a first-class honours degree from London University, attributed her success to the assistance of the new library. One extraordinary man made all this possible. National Green Public Library, and countless others across Britain, Oh, their creation, the philanthropy of steel magnate and industrialist Andrew Carnegie. In one fell swoop, Carnegie offered East Enders a legacy, enabling them to sweep away the misery and poverty of the past. Nineteenth-century Scottish-American, remains the world's biggest philanthropist, doubt equal, even after Amazon boss Jeff Bezos, one of the world's richest man, announced last week that he plans to give away his entire fortune to charity. Cynics might claim that this was in order to rehabilitate his reputation. Bezos said he wanted to give in a way that maximised the impact of the donations. It's not easy, he said. It's really hard. But he's still alive. Annie Carnegie would surely offer advice from the formula that saw him dispose of pretty much his entire fortune, but around £205 billion in today's money, making Bezos's £104 billion pledge seem modest by comparison. Man who famously said, to die rich is to die disgraced, the humble beginnings. Darren McCall, local study supervisor, Dunfermline Carnegie Library explains. Carnegie was born in Dunfermline, to emigrated to Allegheny, Pennsylvania, a suburb of Pittsburgh. his family was a 13 year old. He was from a working class family and found work as a bobbin boy in a cotton mill. He had an enormous thirst for knowledge. He realised he was never going to get back to education when they emigrated. But he petitioned to get access to the public library in Pittsburgh, it was turned down, as they didn't allow children access. Carnegie passionately believed education was a way out of his poverty trap. Local benefactor named Colonel Anderson, retired merchant, heard about this, he opened his private library to Carnegie and other working boys on a Saturday allowing them to borrow a cook week. This gesture had an extraordinary impact on the young Carnegie. Carnegie became a messenger boy for a telegraph company, and was well known for zipping around the streets, a book in his hand, Darren continues. Through this, he met the superintendent of the Pittsburgh Railway Division, who took him on as his personal assistant. That his entry into business life. Carnegie never looked back. At the age of 30, he had a mass business interests in ironworks, steamers on the Great Lakes, railroads and oil wells. He was subsequently also involved in steel production built the Carnegie Steel Corporation to the largest steel manufacturing company in the world. But the first 40 years of his life were dedicating the making of money the last forty devoted, giving it away. On all accounts, diminutive, Carnegie was a ruthlessly ambitious, energetic and charismatic, saying nothing of garrulous, man. His wife Louise worked out hand signals to stop him talking. Carnegie sold his business to US financier JP Morgan in 1901 for 400 million pounds. And from that day on, he spent the rest of his life trying to give it away to good causes. Continues Sharon. For a man educated in a library, there was one obvious route for his philanthropy. It was from my own early experiences that I decided there was no use to which money could be applied so productive: the founding of a public library. he recalled. Sharon continues. He wanted to donate something back to the native Scottish town which meant so much to him. He funded the library which still stands today. Doe Mother laid the foundation stone in 1881. Three years later, in 1883, it opened its doors. Dunfermline was only the start. And he went on to fund 2,000. 509 libraries worldwide in the late 19th and early 20th century. Of these, 1,679 built in the United States.
1: Bill will be back next week with the conclusion of Carnegie's inheritance, in particular, Earlsham, Stoke and Folesville libraries. The well-known legend of Lady Godiva and her association with Coventry has been passed down the generations for hundreds of years. But just how much of it is true, and how much a myth? Nigel has been investigating and puts the story to rights. Lady the Diver is a key figure in the history of poetry. The 900-year-old story was first recorded in Latin by two monks at St Albans Abbey. It was assumed these monks had heard the story from travellers making their way to the capital. So what has made this tale transcend not just space, from the Midlands to London, but time, being part of culture for 900 years? In the 11th century, Lady Godiva reportedly rode a horse completely naked through the streets of Coventry on market day. According to legend, her husband Leofric demanded an oppressive tax from Coventry citizens. Lady Godiva, aiming to help the citizens, play for him to stop. Learthrit supposedly said, you'll have to ride naked through Coventry before I change my ways. Before beginning this quest to help Coventry, Godiva told everyone to stay in their home to preserve her modesty. She then rode through the streets, her long hair draped so that it covered almost her whole body, allowing only her legs and eyes to remain visible. However, one man, now known as Peeping Tom, disobeyed her instructions and couldn't help looking out at the diver riding through Coventry on the horse. And upon doing so, the legend goes he was instantly blinded. Lady Godiva is a bit of historical figure, born in 990 AD. It's unknown when she died, although it was assumed to be between 1066 and 1086. The real driver was known for being generous to the Church. However, despite this historical legitimacy, there is doubt on our right through Coventry due to a lack of records about it. The story only first appeared approximately 100 years after her death, and the monk, Roger of Wendover, who recorded it, was known for stretching the truth in his writings. The peeping Tom character was added to the story in the 16th century, and later became a common term for the voyeur. The Lady clock tower in Coventry depicts both Lady Godiva on her horse and Peeping Tom. Donald Gibson aided the apprentices in the making of the Godiva Clock Tower. The sculptor, for the tent, carved figures from wood. The clock was not received well at first, with many finding it crude it has, however, proven popular with tourists and children. On the hour, the right door of the clock opens, and Lady Godiva rides naked on her horse across the front of the clock before exiting through the left door. Meanwhile, the window above opens and reveals the face of leaping Tom. The clock is been sculpted with detail, including a black eagle on the doors on the yellow background, which is a symbol of Leofric, Earl of Mercia. The clock was unfortunately broken in 1987 in the celebrations that followed Coventry's FA Cup win. In the excitement, people climbed atop the clock tower, damaging the clock. Further marks of Lady Dioghia's legendary ride through the streets live on in a statue built by Sir William Reed Dick in 1949 in the city centre. It was built as a morale booster, symbolic of Coventry's regeneration after the wartime bombings. The legend also lives on in the names of the local annual music festival, the Coventry Godiva Festival. According to legend, the story of Lady Godiva was told by monks in a procession through the streets. The first recorded Godiva procession, originally named the Great Fair, was in 1678. Lady Godiva has been the muse of many paintings. John Collier in 1897 painted her naked but covered by her long hair on a white horse and covered in a red cloth. However, Edmund Blair Layton's depiction of her in his 1892 painting was very different. She's completely covered in a white dress, suggesting purity. Satan's depiction reflects her desire to preserve her modesty by asking the town not to look out their windows. The Kedaiver legend has also spread far beyond Coventry in the name of the Kedaiver Tlopatia, a company founded in Brussels, with now more than 450 stores worldwide. It also inspired a line in one of the 1970-80s band Queen's most popular songs, which was Don't Stop Me Now, I'm a racing car, passing by like it is Godiva. This song reached platinum status in both the US and the UK. Despite this, I suspect the Godiva story and details we're familiar with will persist for many more years. The song Amazing Grace, with its redemptive message and plaintive melody, makes it instantly recognisable. Yet it began life as a poem, written by a reformed sinner, and it was first read about 250 years ago. Peter Sheridan recounts this remarkable story, read by Sue.
4: It is one of the most beloved and popular spiritual songs, performed more than 10 million times each year worldwide. It's been featured on over 11,000 album recordings by stars ranging from Elvis Presley and Ray Charles, to Andrea Bocelli and Whitney Houston. Judy Collins' recording of the hymn spent an astonishing 67 weeks on America's Billboard pop chart between 1970 and 1972. Amazing Grace, with its haunting lyrics and plaintive lilt, made its debut 250 years ago when it was first read as a poem at the New Year's Day service preached by John Newton in the Buckinghamshire market town of Olney. Seven years later, it was put to music, spreading by word of mouth to become one of Christianity's most treasured hymns. Its opening words are ingrained in our collective consciousness, poignant and heartfelt. Amazing grace How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. Yet the clergyman who penned these eternal lines was an unlikely convert to spirituality. Newton was a slave trader who shipped human cargo from Africa to short and brutal lives of bondage and suffering in the West Indies and the Americas. He was known for a love of profanity and debauchery that shocked even his fellow sailors. But his life, laced with torment as it was, seemed destined to lead him to right amazing grace. Born in 1725 in Wapping, East London, he was the son of a sea captain, often away on voyages for years at a time. Only six years old when his mother died of tuberculosis, he was raised by family friends, and at the age of eleven, sent to sea with his father, beginning life as a mariner. By his own admission, The youthful Newton drank and swore to excess, lived the rough life of a sailor, and scorned anyone who spoke of their faith in God. He was 19 years old when kidnapped and press-ganged into the British Navy, receiving 96 lashes after he tried to desert. Disgraced, he was traded for another sailor on a passing slave ship, and so began his career in human trafficking. Newton was sold by malaria off the coast of Sierra Leone and abandoned by the crew of the Pegasus who gave him over to the care of African Princess Pi. When he recovered from his fever, she made Newton a servant to her slaves, abusing him as savagely as she did all her captives. He was reduced to the wretch he later recalled in Amazing Grace, Liberated by a rescue mission funded by his father, Newton escaped only to suffer another near fatal experience. Aboard the Greyhound, heading home in March 1748, the ship was caught in a violent storm off the coast of Ireland. Its sails were torn to shreds, its wooden planks shorn from one side of the vessel, and sailors manned the pumps, desperate to keep her afloat. Too exhausted to pump, Newton was lashed with a helm and battled to steer the ship through the tempest. Moments after he left the deck, the crewman who replaced him was swept overboard. Facing death brought an epiphany as he later wrote, On that day the Lord sent from on high and delivered me out of deep waters. As Newton prayed, the ship's heavy cargo miraculously shifted in the turbulent seas, blocking the hole in the ship's side, allowing it to limp to safety. Newton saw his deliverance as a sign of almighty intervention. Embracing Christianity, he began to study the Bible. Yet his spiritual awakening was slow in coming. Newton continued sailing slave ships for another six years, in which time he narrowly escaped death on several occasions. Thrown from a horse, he barely missed being impaled on sharp spikes. Heading back to sea, he arrived too late to board a tender, sailing to tour a warship, and watched from shore as it overturned and drowned all on board. Later, back in Africa, he got lost in a swamp on a hunting expedition, and seemed doomed until the moon emerged from behind clouds and lit his way out of the morass. Each miraculous escape brought Newton closer to his face. Now captain of his own slave ship, he urged his crew to pray and to treat their human cargo with compassion. But in 1754, aged only 29, he suffered a stroke and retired from life at sea returning to his wife for four years, Mary. Newton worked at the customs office in Liverpool, but became dedicated to his newborn Christian faith, and on the strength of his writings was offered a church in the parish of Olney, ordained in 1764. Deciding to write a book of new hymns, Amazing Grace was originally given the less catchy title Faith's Review and Expectation, penned in the final days of 1772 in the top-floor attic of Newton's Vicarage. His diary entry for December 22nd, 1772, reads, Employed variously, sometimes composing hymns, visiting the people, etc. Seven years later, Around the time that he left Olney to become rector of St Mary Walnut in London, the hymn was first put to music, though the original tune is now lost to history. Sixty years later, the song had travelled to America, where it was set to the tune of New Britain, the melody we know and love today. Even after writing Amazing Grace, It was another decade before Newton began speaking out against slavery, joining British MP William Wilberforce's fight to abolish the inhumane trade. Newton spoke passionately with first-hand experience of the torture, rape and murder he had witnessed. A bill for the abolition of slavery was finally signed into law by King George III in 1807 and Newton said, I hope it will always be a subject of humiliating reflection to me that I was once an active instrument in a business at which my heart now shudders. Newton died just months later, aged 82, but his message of forgiveness and redemption from sin through God's mercy lived on. Amazing Grace was first recorded in 1922, and became a popular secular song with a 60s folk music revival. It was sung at the Woodstock Music Festival in 1969, but it was singer Judy Collins' haunting 1970 version that made it a global phenomenon. During his final years, Newton remained awed by his transformation. My memory is nearly gone, he said, but I remember two things, that I am a great sinner, and that Christ is a great
1: saviour. From poetry and songs to theatre. How many of you have heard of Shopfront Theatre? Keith Bushnell reads an article from the Earlson Echo which expresses the sadness, yet immense pride as this unique theatre
7: closed. Back in December 2009, Echo reported on a new venture by Chapelfields-based Julia Negus and Chris O'Connell, aka Theatre Absolute, who that month were launching the UK's first prof- professional shopfront theatre. This was to be based in the former Fishy Morris chip shop in the City Arcade. The concept was inspired by a visit Chris had made to Chicago a year or two before, where he had been invited to meet a theatrical group, and was surprised to encounter something the Americans call a storefront theatre, which sharply contrasted with the usual idea of a theatre comprising a stage with fixed seats. Nonetheless, it is clear from that first Echo report that Julia and Chris had not fully formed their vision of what their shopfront theatre could become. Initially, they had only negotiated an 18-month occupancy with Country City Council. A rent-free deal agreed in the expectation that plans to redevelop that area of the city would see its demolition within a couple of years. The original idea of a space for Julia and Chris's own work expanded over time, partly driven by the funding issues, caused by the Arts Council's 2012 decision not to support them. This led to a broadening of the scope as the space was made available to more groups, not just in the world of theatre, to reach out to the public for a variety of purposes. This included everything from writing gyms for aspiring writers to pop-up craft fairs. As we now know, 18 months eventually became 13 years, including a 13-month hiatus during the COVID lockdown. The keys were high- finally handed back to the City Council a few days after the last two events at the theatre, the launch of the Shopford Theatre Archive 2009-2022 to on Friday the 4th of November, and the Farewell Party the next day. With everything they have created and facilitated, it was difficult for Julia and Chris to pick out highlights. Every event was different and the creative experience behind the scenes has differed from that of the audience. Echo, however, is happy to select the following memories, which will last a lifetime. Lamplight Recordings, which started in 2009. Starting with a Christmas carol brought to life by John Slipcroft and later Craig Shelton, this was the perfect way to withdraw from the hustle and bustle of Christmas shopping and enjoy the timeless magic of Dickens' seasonal tale in an intimate setting. Arcade, in 2012. The audience, most of us new to this kind of theatre, were physically immersed in the cafe setting of the drama, and observed the action moving out to the City Arcade and into Queen Victoria Road. One performance went a little off piece. When a passerby attempted to break up an argument between the protagonists, a disaster for traditional theatre, but all part of the fun in this context. Traum in 2016, a new cross discipline concept involving breakdancing and sampled sound and text, a great example of the groundbreaking radical side of the theatre. And Montague's song in 2016, marking the 100th anniversary of the psalm, it was a joint production staged with Talking Birds at the St John's Church to celebrate the life of Sponen's Montague Johnson, a violinist and a tragic victim of the slaughter. The archive book is a sumptuous publication with numerous photographs which capture perfectly the history and the spirit of the theatre. The quality, unfortunately, has to be reflected in the price, £70, which makes it perhaps a more suitable purchase for organisations, such as arts groups and libraries, than for individuals. Both the book launch and the farewell party were bittersweet occasions for all present. The sense of pride at the achievements being celebrated Contrasting with sadness that it was ending. Walking out of those doors for the last time was a difficult moment for the artists, supporters, volunteers, and no doubt, most of all, for Julia and Chris themselves. As we know, all good things must come to an end. This watershed moment does not mean the end of theatre, absolute, but it will be different from now on with Julia and Chris taking their work out into the city and beyond without a permanent base. One aspect of their work which will definitely continue is support for up-and-coming artists.
1: And now to bring this edition of Outlook to a close, Ali Red reads another of Cynthia Townsend's short stories. This one, The President, The Model and Me. I've worked on some pretty cool things during my career so far.
3: You know, the kind of things you'd only ever do once in a lifetime. But one of my most bizarre jobs was trying to protect President Bill Clinton at the G8 Summit in 1998. He may have been the most powerful man in the world at the time, and been surrounded by lots of security guards, but I had an important role in making sure that he wasn't compromised by the advances of a glamour model. I was working in the press office of the local authority when the G8 summit came to Birmingham in 1998. It had already been an exciting few weeks because the city had also hosted the original Song Contest and I was still recovering from that. However, once all that had left town, it was all hands on deck to make the city ready for this important meeting of the G8 world leaders. On the run-up to the event, the City Council PR team and the local ad agency had been working hard to promote this event to the citizens as it was seen as something to be proud of that all these important people were coming for the week and it was to the general public that he pitched the PR campaign. Several ordinary citizens were chosen as poster stars to promote the event in a way that hadn't really been done before and each person was assigned to a particular country. There was this lovely lady called Marge Potter. She was a pensioner and had agreed to be part of the poster campaign. She had a photograph taken, and the pose was one of her adjusting a hairstyle at the back, and the catch line was, Get your hair done, Marge. Bill Clinton's coming to town. Birmingham had spent £9 million making the city look more presentable. Even going to the trouble of painting the grass with green mulch it looked nice. Nothing was left undone. When the leaders arrived at Birmingham Airport, on the way into the city centre, they'd all be driven past these enormous posters of themselves, welcoming them to the city, as well as the posters of the other people chosen for the ad campaign. Marge Potter became a bit of a superstar, and was excited at the prospect of meeting Bill Clinton, as all the brummies featured in the campaign Local people of all ages and backgrounds were to be introduced to the G8 leaders to give the drinks reception a more informal atmosphere before the leaders headed off for a meal at the Edwardian tea Rooms. I remember being really excited at the prospect of seeing President Clinton in the flesh. He was the most famous man on the planet. And I could see why people liked him. He was very charming and stopped to say hello to all of us who were waiting inside the entrance of the councillor house. As all the leaders and their partners walked up the amazing picture staircase, accompanied by the great and the good of city, I saw President Clinton close up, and when he turned around and smiled and said hello to those of us who were standing at the side of the staircase, I must admit, I was starstruck. It looked like it was going to be a good night, and once everyone was safely upstairs, myself and the other press officers joined them to help with the meet and greet and the general mingling. I'd got mingling off to a fine art after my stint of working on the Eurovision Song Contest. However, during the early part of the evening, we'd been tipped off by a reporter from a national newspaper that one of its rivals had got a stunt lined up, which could have seriously compromised President Clinton, and when we heard about it, we were quite concerned and worried that all of our hard work would be undone. One of the poster stars, was a pretty 24-year-old student called Tara, who, like Marge, had been interviewed by local, national and international media, and she capitalised slightly on a newfound thing to post populous to a well-known national newspaper. The same newspaper had asked her to try and get a photograph of Bill Clinton, but not just a stand by them and smile sweetly type photo, but a go up to him and flash your union jack sequin knickers at him. And away. Well, no way was this going to happen, so my press office colleagues and I hatched a cunning plan. I was assigned to stick to Tara like blue. Wherever she went, I went. If it looked like she was going to try and make a move on the President, she was ushered off in a different direction. It was very surreal, and also very frustrating for her, as she wanted this photograph and it would have catapulted her to international stardom. When the time came for the leaders to be taken to the dinner venue, we all gave a sigh of relief, and Tara was left a tad disgruntled. Mind you, she hasn't done too badly for herself. She's posed for numerous Playboy magazine articles, and has been in a couple of adult films, including a documentary aptly titled Thanks for the Mammaries. Well, that night in May... 1998 is a memory, sorry, memory, I won't forget in memory hurry.
1: As we close this week's Outlook, another quick reminder to get your wallets back in the post as soon as you can, so that we can get as many as possible back, even with any postal disruptions. We're back next week. Until then, it's goodbye from me, Peter Walters.